Our gracious God, we pray that your word may live in us this day and bear fruit to your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome, friends, to our second study of the Solas of the Reformation. Last week, uh, we saw how Anglicanism is a reformed Western Catholicism. And one of the crucial reforms is captured in a catch cry. I guess these days we'd say a soundbite. And that is sola gratia, which we looked at last week, or grace alone, not grace plus merit we've earned, but God's undeserved favour in Christ towards us. That's where our salvation is to be found. And I sought to show that that uh, catch cry, grace alone, is grounded in the Scriptures. And that itself is a product of that 16th century Reformation because the Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement amongst other things. And that back to the Bible is summed up in another one of those solas. Sola scriptura, or scripture alone, Bible alone. And so, friends, once more, our format this morning will be, A, we'll look at some history, B, the biblical grounding for this idea of scripture as the final authority, and then C, we'll be looking at relevance the relevance of this for today. Now, you see, the Reformation of the 16th century threw into sharp relief a big question. Where is religious authority ultimately to be found? Is it to be found in the Bible as the Word of God or is it to be found in the church? So, let's look at a some of the history here. And by authority, I mean that which legitimately, legitimately commands our belief, that commands our behaviour, that binds our conscience. Well, for the 16th century Roman Catholic Church, that authority was found in the church, the church to teach. That meant the Pope and the bishops. And for the Bible to prove that teaching and for the laity to listen, believe and obey that teaching. And it was that that the reformers of the 16th century pushed back against. Against that Roman Catholic answer. Take, for example, John Calvin, that 16th century reformer based there in Geneva passed away in 1564. As I said last week, I'm big on when people died. He had two really good metaphors for understanding why the Bible is so important for the life of the church and for God's people. In his famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, still in print, you can get it on CD-ROM these days even, he had this metaphor he describes scripture as spectacles. Now, many of us uh, wear spectacles. Believe me, you look much better when I have them on than when I have them off. Spectacles bring things into sharp focus. And what Calvin was saying was that the scriptures bring God into sharp focus. The scriptures bring us into sharp focus. 
the scriptures bring God and us and our relationship to God and what it should be and what it has become and needs to become again into sharp focus. Scripture as spectacles. Scripture as the lens through which we view God and God's will and ways for us, his creatures in this broken world. He had another metaphor. He describes Scripture as the school of Christ. You go to scripture to learn about Jesus, to learn about who Jesus is and what he has done and why Jesus matters to us. For him, it was the scripture to teach. For him, it was the scripture to prove. It was for us as the people of God to listen to those scriptures, believe and obey them. Whether we're a church leader like a Calvin, or whether we are a member of a church. We are to be the listening people of God to the Scriptures. Now, he wasn't the only reformer who was going back to the Bible. When this new Reformation teaching got to the University of Cambridge, there was a theologian there by the name of Thomas Cranmer. So, what did he do when he heard this new teaching coming across the channel Coming across there to the University of Cambridge, he spent three years studying his Bible to see if these things were so. And he concluded that Martin Luther had got it right. But notice what he did. Back to the Bible. And it was Archbishop Thomas Cranmer because he became the first Reformation Archbishop of the Church of England It was Archbishop Cranmer who said that Scripture constitutes another metaphor now, the fat pastures for the soul. If you want to go to feed, to grow spiritually, according to Archbishop Cranmer, you go to the Scriptures. In fact, he wrote a very famous work, in the time it was famous, on the Lord's Supper and the nature of the Lord's Supper. And the first part of that uh, great work he wrote was all Bible. And when he got to the end of his teaching from the Bible on the subject of what the Lord's Supper was on about, he said, for the godly person, that's enough. But because there are people who appeal to the tradition of the church and to reason, he was going to go on in his work to show how reason supported what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper and how the tradition of the early church up until 1215 of all times was on the side of what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper. But notice his first move was the Bible and if you're a godly person that's enough. Sometimes we hear the idea that Anglicanism believes in a three-legged stool that is Bible, reason and tradition. But in actual fact if you go back to Archbishop Cranmer and to those 16th century reformers And in fact, if you go back to the Book of Common Prayer, the 39 articles and what's called the ordinal, that is the the liturgies by which people are made bishop, priest and deacon, you'll find that it is a back to the Bible liturgy. Reason and tradition have their place. But the supreme place for someone like Archbishop Cranmer, and it ultimately cost him his life in 1556 when he was burnt at the stake in Oxford, It was the Bible as the supreme authority. 
In fact, just mentioning Oxford, if you ever go to Oxford in England and go to Broad Street, you will see in the pavement, in the roadway itself, a rough cross. And that was the place in 1555 where Bishop Latimer and Bishop, Re- uh, Bishop Ridley were burnt to death and in 1556 where Archbishop Cranmer suffered the same fate. You see, as Anglicans, we're meant to be Bible people. And Article 6 of our 39 Articles makes it very clear. And this is what it says. Holy Scripture contains all things necessary for salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, proved thereby, is not required of any man, and these days we'd say woman, that it should be believed as an article of faith. Now the question though is, does that idea itself have good biblical grounding? So let's turn to B and the biblical grounding for this. And if we're going to think about uh, the Bible and why it should have authority in our lives, there's no better place to go than to Jesus himself. And if you have your Bible there, would you like to turn to Matthew chapter 4 and the famous uh, story of Jesus meeting the tempter in the wilderness. He's been baptised by John the Baptist. He's identified with the Baptist movement, which was a renewal and restoration of Israel movement. He has the Spirit anointing him as the incarnate Son of God. He is anointed, that is, he's Messiah. And now he faces the testing, having been commissioned to be the Messiah of Israel's hope. And it's a well-known story there in the wilderness. In chapter 4 and verse 1, we find the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. He's there 40 days and 40 nights, which is a, a Bible way of saying, it's an idiomatic way of saying, he's there for quite a time. And the tempter comes and says, well, if you're the Son of God, verse 3, command these stones that they may become loaves of bread, because he was hungry, you see. And how does he reply? He appeals to his scripture, to the Hebrew Bible. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Well, the devil's not put off by this. He comes back again. And he takes him to the holy city, puts him on the pinnacle of the temple, and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. You can see it's, uh, I'm now going to use your authority here. And he quotes, but in actual fact, if you read the context, it is a misuse of Psalm 91 verses 11 to 12. It says it is written, says the tempter, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. In other words, okay, the first temptation didn't work. That is, look after your own needs, forget God. No, Jesus stayed true to his heavenly Father. What about this second temptation? Okay, you believe in God's authority or Father's authority, but let's see if you really trust that authority. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and see what he will do. But Jesus says, again it is written, you shall not put 
the Lord your God to the test. Again, it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6 this time and verse 16. Well, again, the devil takes him for the last time now, it's the third temptation, to a very high mountain. And if you're reading it in literary terms, this is increasing tension. So it starts on the level place, the plain, it moves up to a next higher place, which is the temple, pinnacle, and now it's a mountain. This is getting extremely tense and serious. And on this very high mountain, the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, this I'll give you if you'll fall down and make me the object of your worship. And the language of worship here is the protocol you adopt before majesty. Do that to me. This is enough for Jesus. Be gone, he says. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. This time from Deuteronomy again, chapter 6, once more. This time, verse 13. So what we see here is that when this temptation comes for the Messiah to deviate from the Father's will, for him it's back to the Bible. And interestingly enough, when the devil comes misquoting the Bible, Jesus makes a very important move. He doesn't simply take what the devil says. He says, ah, again it is written. There was a great Bible teacher of last century called G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, If you know the preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones served under G. Campbell Morgan in London. And G. Campbell Morgan, interestingly enough, said, never say as a Christian it is written. What you should say is, it is written, and again it is written, and again it is written, and again it is written. And what he was saying was, the way to misuse the Bible is to just isolate a statement of the Bible and run with it. Know your Bible so well that you can say it is written, and again it is written, and again it is written. That's what Jesus did. And significantly, I'll get excited about this, I'll take my coat off in a minute if I get too excited. (laughs) Significantly, what Jesus was quoting was from Moses preaching to Israel gathered on the plains of Moab before they were to cross into the promised land. It was against the backdrop of Israel's failure in the wilderness to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It tested God in the wilderness and Israel worshipped idols in the wilderness. It's against that background that Moses is saying to Israel, live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Don't put your God to the test. Worship only the Lord. But Israel, God's Old Testament son, failed at that. But this son, the true Israel, all that Israel was meant to be as God's son, he does not fall in the wilderness but stays true to his heavenly Father by living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus is using this scripture theologically, not in a proof-texting way, with a deep understanding of the Old Testament as the word of God by which he lived. And if we follow Jesus, if we call him our Lord, How can we have a lesser view 
of that scripture than he has. And that carries over to his words and the words of the apostles he commissioned. You see, friends, our doctrine of scripture is really based ultimately on our doctrine of Jesus and his authority. So we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And what's that word of God about? 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you've got your Bible there, and one of the most famous passages about Scripture that you can find in Scripture itself. This is what uh, Paul writes to his younger associate, Timothy, who had a few things to straighten out when it comes to the congregation at Ephesus. But as for you, Timothy, he's saying, in contrast to the false teaching and teachers that were troubling this church, but as for you, you continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. This is 2 Timothy 3 and verse 14. Knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the people of God, the man and woman of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. This scripture, this holy scripture, Paul is saying to Timothy, can make you wise when it comes to salvation and salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, uh, on my Bible, and I'm sure it's on your Bible, it says Holy Bible on the spine. You ever wondered why? It's not as though, you know, if you went into your room at night and the lights are out, it starts to glow. It's, it's not holy in that sense. There are only two places in the New Testament where Scripture is said to be sacred or holy. 2 Timothy 3 is one of them and Romans chapter 1, right at the beginning, is the other place. And if you look at both, it's saying that this is a body of literature that's set apart for a specific purpose. That's what holiness can mean. This is not like the canon of Shakespeare. It's not like a canon of some great author, literary figure. It's a holy canon or list of books because it has been set apart by God, breathed out by God. It's a rare word. It only occurs here, I think, in any literature. Theonustos, breathed out by God so that we might have faith in Jesus Christ and have all that we need to live a godly life. That's why our reformers were going back to the Bible, the school of Christ. That's why they were putting on the spectacles of Scripture to see the things of God. That's why they went to the Scriptures to find fat pastures for the soul because this is a special book. Now, that idea of breathed out by God or Theonustos, I think it's this kind of metaphor. If I may be so bold, this talk is a Graham Neustos talk because, you see, my breath is the vehicle for your hearing my words. And I think that is what Paul is driving at. The Spirit of God is the vehicle by which we hear the words of God that are in the Scripture of God. 
Put another way, Martin Luther said, Scripture is the manger in which we find the Christ child lying. We go to Scripture to find Christ. Uh, 2 Peter 1 and verse 21 is another famous text that draws our attention to why this book is an authoritative book. 2 Peter 1.21 tells us that no prophecy of Scripture just comes by the will of any human being, but uh, holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they wrote. And the metaphor here is like the wind that fills up the sails of a sailing ship or a sailing boat and drives it along the water. In other words, to really understand this book, it's a story about God's Spirit and it's a story about the human authors. But ultimately, this is the Word of God to bind our conscience. But friends, what would that mean for us today in practical terms? What can we learn, not just from our reformers, but from the Scriptures themselves about why this is sola scriptura? Well, let me take you back into the Bible again, this time to the book of Acts, because I think we have a very instructive example there. It's an example that involves St. Paul. He'd just been thrown out of Thessalonica. You know what his uh, mission strategy was. He goes to the synagogue, preaches Jesus, then he's shown the door, and then he preaches to the Gentiles if they're there, or he has to leave town. Well, he had to leave town. And he sets off in verse 10 of Acts 17 with uh, Silas to Berea. And they arrive there and again he does his thing. He goes to the Jewish synagogue, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile or the Greek. And then we read in verse 11, these Jews were more noble. So there's a value judgment in the text here. There's a comparative statement here than those in Thessalonica. Now what made them more noble? They received the word, what Paul was preaching, with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These Bereans, in attitude and action, I think are instructive for us because what they did was when they heard people talk about God, they checked out the scriptures for themselves. Remember what Thomas Cranmer did in Cambridge when he heard this new teaching from Martin Luther? He checked it out against the scriptures themselves. Now, the classic metaphor here in the evangelical tradition, it's found in one of my favourite Anglican writers, J.C. Ryle, it's to call scripture the touchstone of faith. Now, what is a touchstone? A touchstone, I found out, is a a piece of uh, basalt. There are several other dark stones that are useful here. And with this basalt, you can test whether something is really gold or not. That's why it's a touchstone. The practice goes right back to the ancient Greeks. What you do is you're, you're mining for gold. And you think you've come across some gold, so you have some gold in your pocket and you have your touchstone, your little bit of basalt. And what you do is you get what you think is that gold out of the, uh, out of the earth and you rub it against the touchstone. 
and it will leave a streak if it is really gold. And you compare that streak on the touchstone with the bit of gold you brought with you. And if they match, you've got a good idea indeed that you've struck gold. Not fool's gold, but real gold. In other words, a touchstone becomes a, a way of doing quality control. And when it comes to claims about God and claims upon our lives and our consciences in the name of God, and there are plenty of people wanting to do that, just turn on your television. <laughs> what we do is we go to the touchstone, like the Berean, to see if these things are so, like Cranmer did in Cambridge. In other words, when we talk about sola scriptura, the reformers knew that reason plays a role in our lives and tradition plays a role in our lives, experience plays a role in our lives, but whenever there is any conflict between authorities, scripture is supreme, has the last word. It is the touchstone of faith. That's what scripture alone means. All things necessary for salvation, they have to be grounded in the scripture if someone is coming and telling us something about what we need to believe and do. Well, friends, what does that mean for us today? We need pastors who know their scriptures. We need pastors who believe their scriptures. We need pastors who love the scriptures. You see, at a congregational level, Anglicanism is a Bible-reading, Bible-hearing, Bible-believing church. If you were in morning prayer just a moment ago, what was the invitation? to hear God's holy word. That's why the Bible is read and lots of it in an Anglican service. In fact, uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and says, give attention, Timothy, to the public reading of Scripture. Now, there's a strange phenomenon happening in our world and that is we're finding folk, that is myself in, in seminary, young people gravitating to liturgical churches like an Anglican church. And one reason is that the Bible is actually read and lots of the Bible is read. And if it's a good church, it's preached on as well, like we heard this morning in the service. Whereas I can take you to evangelical churches in Chicago with big reputations and you may not even hear the Bible read, let alone preached on. You might hear how to cope with depression or the financial crisis, but you won't hear the word of God. And that's tragic. That's tragic. A Cranmer wanted to make sure that the Anglican church was a Bible-hearing, Bible-reading, Bible-believing church at a congregational level. But what about the personal level? What about you personally? Let me suggest that as we do, we're so privileged, we live this side of the printing press. So we've all got one or more of these Bibles that we can appeal to. In fact, some of you, probably I can't see anyone doing someone may be following this on their phone, for example. The person is not tweeting, by the way. They're just, <laughs> they're being faithful to the scripture. Um, so, We've got such access to scripture, but how are we to relate to that scripture? Now, if you walk around 
advent and look at the stained glass windows from the outside, they're pretty dull on a bright day. The moment you change position and move to the inside, those windows are full of light, aren't they? The question is, how do we get inside the scripture? And the biblical practice for getting inside the scripture is biblical meditation. Psalm 1 sets up the entire 150 psalms. What is the righteous person like? The righteous person meditates on the law of God day and night. And what does that mean? Well, one of our great Anglican theologians, Jim Packer, put it brilliantly in his book, Knowing God. He says, Biblical meditation is turning what you learn of God, that is from the Word of God, into prayer and praise to God. You take what you learn of God in the Scriptures of God into prayer and praise to God. That's what this practice looks like. The the Hebrew word, Hagar, is of a very close reading of the scripture like you see at the Wailing Wall. And he said there was a man who... It it can be used for muttering, for muttering. Now, you don't have to go and mutter. You know, people will get someone, you know, call 911 if they hear you muttering around Advent, I'm sure. But the idea is of paying close attention to the scripture. Now, how can I be practical about this? Some of you have the time to do that every day and probably have some planned program for reading through the Scriptures and I commend you for that. But at the very least, let me suggest this. Take away your bulletin every Sunday and meditate on the Scripture readings that are there. And let me suggest a very practical way to actively do that. Now, I won't commend everything that comes out of Sweden. Volvos, yes. Massage, yes. But not everything. But the Swedish method of Bible study, I'll commend that. And what is it? Very simple. When you're reading through your bulletin through the week or your Bible, if you've got another system... Have a pencil and with that pencil, if something in the scripture really informs you about God, the world, yourself, life, then draw a candle in the margin and think on that. And what you learn, turn into prayer and praise to God, like Packer suggests. Or, as you're reading through this, it strikes your conscience because this is the Spirit of God's book and the Spirit of God can bring to light the things in life that need to be amended. That wonderful phrase, amendment of life. Draw an arrow because there is something that needs to be attended to. And if you read something in Scripture that's really puzzling, then put a question mark and go and ask someone as to what that may mean. It may be talking to some of the cathedral staff, for example, or going online or reading a commentary. But there are three little tools, a candle, an arrow, a question mark. So we may become not only a Bible reading and Bible hearing people, but a Bible meditating people who pay even closer attention 
to what we hear. Because the only way forward in the Christian life is the way back, back to the Word of God. Well, friends, we have some time for some questions. So, David, you... Oh, there's a question up the back there. Thank you, Dr. Cole. You being an Anglican makes this an easier question, but our tradition, of course, is particularly during the Eucharist, when Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John are read, people stand as a little more ceremony surrounding it. Uh, oftentimes it may even be pressed, uh, uh, processed down the aisle as if there were a special reverence for those particular books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, over and against an epistle, for example. Don't you think? Or what is your idea about the danger of somehow or another, either consciously or subconsciously, uh, becoming our idea that they are more the Word of God than, say, Corinthians or Romans, for example? It's a good question because it's a real danger. And that's why it's very important to know why we do what we do in an Anglican liturgy, lest we put it in the wrong frame of reference. So, we will stand as a custom when the Gospel is read and if it comes down into the congregation, as it were, surround it because it underlines the great truth yet again that Scripture is about Christ. But remember what he himself said, all the scriptures about him. So we take that uh, truth away with it, but not in such a way as to, to make his apostles stand on a lower level. Why not? Because of Matthew 4. What did we see? Jesus, having been commissioned with the Spirit coming upon him as the Messiah, he lives himself by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and models for us what it is like to live under that authority in his humanity. And so there is the great model for us. And the same spirit that animated his ministry in his humanity is the same spirit who inspired 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians and so on. And that's why we see it all standing on the same level as the Word of God. Is that addressing the question? Dr. Cole, you said that the Reformers rejected the authority of the Church, the Pope and the Bishops, in return to the Bible. Does that have modern-day application for us? Okay, the question is that the Reformers rejected the authority of the Pope, the Roman Church. Does that have... Uh, uh, something to teach us today. Uh, firstly, they did think the church had some authority. Uh, classically, it's a norma normata. It's a ruled norm. Uh, but it's not the normal normans. It's not the ruling norm. So, yes, uh, for example, Cranmer said, uh, churches have the right to uh, work out how they do church in different places. It's in the preface of the prayer book. But if what he was saying wasn't you know, consistent with the Bible, he wouldn't have said that. So, it's the ultimate authority. So, we would have a problem, I would hope, with anyone who's trying to put themselves on a par with Scripture or even above the Scripture. Let me give a terrible illustration of this. Not because I, I'm a bad illustrator. It's just the content's terrible. 
Remember Jim Jones of Guyana and the Jonestown tragedy? All those people suiciding? There was someone in his church before he went completely off the rails who left his church one day when Jim Jones was preaching in this little church and this fellow was like a Berean. He had his Bible open and he was checking out what Jim Jones was saying. And you know what Jim Jones said? He shouted from the pulpit, shut that book, you listen to me. That's the danger you're talking about, I think. I have a a question more of history. Do you think the Reformation would have developed either more slowly or differently had the printing press not been invented? Oh, what an interesting question. Would the Reformation have gone uh, more slowly if the printing press hadn't been invented? I would say absolutely. It would have gone far more slowly because not only did the printing press enable the multiplication of Bibles, but it promoted Bible translation into the vernacular. So Luther translated the Bible into German and then Tyndall, he translated the New Testament into English, which was forbidden, by the way, at the time. So God, in his providence, the printing press just made it so accessible. But not only did it do that, it did another thing. It encouraged people to learn to read. Let me tell a story. I was uh, conducting an evangelistic mission in uh, St. Philip's West, Sydney. And it's a working class uh, parish in Sydney. And I came across a young man who got converted in his teens. He was converted to Christ as an illiterate. But having come to Christ, he so wanted to read the Bible for himself that he learnt to read. And when I met him, he was doing law at university. The Bible had in print had that effect in the 16th century of promoting people wanting to read and read it for themselves. It's a great uh, force for good. Is that addressing your question? I think we've just about come to the end of our time and let me just say the Lord be with you.